Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we have a very special show for you today. It's not our usual real estate show. Today, we have the story of what's happening in California with the wildfires that have been making headlines all over the nation. All the way from Sebastopol, California, welcome to the show, Adam Taggart. Welcome, Victor. It's an honor to be here. Great to have you here, Adam. I know it's been a difficult week for you. You were evacuated from your home along with 180,000 of your closest friends. What was that like? Well, uh, it was chaotic. Let me start with the good news where, and maybe this isn't such great news, but uh, we are getting used to this drill up here in uh, Northern California. Two years ago, our area was ravaged by the Tubbs fire. And that fire ended up being a lot more destructive in the end in terms of structures burned and and sadly lives lost. So this one, there were many fewer structure burned, fewer structures burned at the end of the day, and uh, very happy to say there were no lives lost. So despite the stress, the anxiety, and the uh, the inconvenience, um, we're all considering ourselves very lucky at this point. Well, and I'm very glad to hear that. You know, certainly the images from two years ago were heart-wrenching, to say the least. The dislocation to the thousands of folks that lost their homes, um, not just in the Tubbs fire, but in the many fires that were part of that year's fire season, was enormously destructive. Of course, you know, right now, the headlines are all focused on Southern California, not so much on, on Sonoma County. But uh, what's happened in Sonoma is still, it's a big deal. It's a lot of acreage that's been lost. And one of the things that comes to mind, of course, yourself and Chris uh, are the principals and founders of Peak Prosperity, an organization that is focused on what to do when things go wrong and make sure that you've set up your life in a manner that you can be resilient. So now you're having not only talk about it in, in a theoretical sense, you're experiencing it firsthand. Uh, what's that been like? <laughs> that is very true. And this is these, these fires are definitely reminders from the universe uh, on the importance of cultivating resilience in your life. Um, they, they really put all your planning to the test. But uh, seriously speaking, it, it is a real reaffirmation of the importance of preparation in building that kind of uh, you know, flexibility and adaptability into your life. And I'll give you a couple of examples of, of why that was so important. One is somebody who writes a lot about preparation and, and not just emergency preparedness, but being prepared for uh, a whole number of different potential outcomes in life. And that's really the core of what resilience is. It's no matter what life throws at you, your ability to bounce back to it, to your adaptability is, is as high as possible. Understandably, I'm, I've got a pretty good bug out plan at my house for almost any type of situation. And so being able to leave the house at a moment's notice uh, that's something I'm very well prepared to do. And, and again, just to reference the Tubbs fire two years ago, uh, there were a lot of people who had literally seconds to leave their house, of se seconds uh, of, of notice. Uh, somebody was pounding on their door at 3 a.m. telling them that they had to run now for their lives. Uh, and in those cases, you've got really no ability to think or really take any action. Uh, you just have to get in the car and run. Given my background, I'm, I'm very uh, well prepared to do that. In this case, uh, the, the signal the universe sent me personally was that uh, you can have your plans in place, but things can still go down in, in a manner where uh, you can't put into action the plan that you've, uh, you've prepared for. So in my case, my oldest child had just started her freshman year at college, and my wife and I were down there for parents weekend. So uh, when the evacuation warning started coming out, we were 300 miles away from our house. 
<laughs> so we, we had to figure out what to do with that distance between us. And we uh, decided that we eventually needed to leave our time with our daughter and make the mad dash back home to rescue uh, pets and, and what valuables uh, and essentials that we could. So, you know, I had the uh, experience of believing that I was prepared for everything, except I just hadn't planned for where I was actually going to be when the disaster hit. Another, I think, important learning from this, too, is in an emergency, uh, timing really is everything. Once I had gotten home that evening and we had packed the car with all the things we were going to take and I'd sent another daughter off to safety, uh, I stayed at the house until it became clear that, uh, that evacuation was now mandatory. And when that warning went out, I left the house uh, probably within five minutes of getting the warning. Two things to note here. One, um, one of the things that you need to be prepared for when uh, an emergency happens is that despite all your preparations, you're going to make mistakes. And in my case, I had uh, you know, done everything pretty perfectly by the book up until the last minute. Uh, but I had planned to take a, a back road out of town. Uh, we live in a country area and uh, the roads can get congested quite quickly if there's a lot of traffic on the road. Jumping in the car, adrenaline running, uh, on the phone, calling family and friends, uh, trying to make sure, you know, check in with people, make sure they were getting out too. Uh, muscle memory just took over and it ended up finding myself at the main artery out of town. Uh, I just had forgotten to take that back route that I was expecting to. For a while there, it looked like some, you know, I, I was not going to be allowed to get off of my little, little on-ramp uh, onto that main artery because everybody was panicked. Fortunately, someone eventually did slow down and let me on. But the learning there was, even though I'd done everything exactly right up until that point, that one goof in my, uh, you know, in my, the steps I was taking kind of put everything else I had done correctly before in jeopardy. The other thing I wanted to reiterate here is, as I said, I left about five minutes after the warning went out. I have friends who it took maybe an extra half hour, 45 minutes uh, for them to get in the car and, and begin to get out of town. They ended up having to turn around and go back to just ride things out in their homes because that artery out of town had become gridlocked. Sometimes minutes will really make all the difference. That's such a powerful lesson there. And by the way, just for the listeners at home, I want to reiterate something here. Adam is not one of these tin hat preppers with a nuclear bunker dug down 200 feet behind his house. Uh, it's really just about setting sensible, prudent preparedness measures for whatever life could throw at you, whether it's a banking crisis, whether it is a, a natural disaster like fire or earthquake. It's just prudent preparedness, right? I appreciate that distinction, Victor. Yes, exactly. At Peak Prosperity, we, we look at a lot of risks in the economy and in our energy systems and whatnot. And and there are some scary trends out there that have us, um, you know, concerned for certain permutations the future may take. But unlike sort of the doomsday prepper crowd uh, that is all about bunkers and, and uh, stored food and uh, defense measures and all that, uh, we're really, we take a much more optimistic view of the future. Our general thrust is basically rediscovering a lot of ways to live life that probably your grandparents would have just thought of as normal make an awful lot of sense in our lives, both in terms of giving us that resilience we're talking about, um, but also being life enhancing. So, you know, a, a closeness to nature, uh, sourcing more of your calories from your, your local food shed for, for more food security, becoming more involved in your community so that you're providing help to those who need it. But in times of need, you're getting help from those as well. Um, these are all things that are just smart to do. And like I said, uh, even if the next 50 years look exactly like the past 50 years, uh, these are things that are enhancing to your quality of life, you know, getting into better shape, eating healthier, 
being more engaged and valued in your community. Those are all great things. But if we end up having some of these dislocations that you just mentioned, you know, a, a major economic slowdown or a stock market crisis, if uh, oil prices somehow spike back up to $150 a barrel or higher, um, these are all things that are going to give you an outsized protective value to that. That resonates really strongly with me. In fact, one of the comparisons that I make is comparing the North American lifestyle to the lifestyle in Europe. And my wife and I just spent three months in Europe uh, living on board our sailboat. And very quickly, we managed to develop relationships in the local community that were unusual for us, but normal for them. And it was so wonderful. If I didn't have a car that particular week because I hadn't rented a car and I needed a drive to uh, to pick up some supplies for the boat, I could easily get that arranged simply by virtue of having developed relationships. And we don't think that way in North America. We don't. And, and we don't even think that way when we're designing our uh, standard of living here. So, you know, in North America, the car still reigns supreme. Most towns and, and uh, living arrangements for folks out in suburban sprawl, you know, they're not walkable the way that they are in Europe. The way that life there is designed is, is really designed much more for a pedestrian lifestyle. And of course, that's because folks used to meet in the town center and that was the, the nexus for relationship and commerce. And we just don't have that same arrangement here in, the, in North America. Absolutely. Now, with the mention of the name Sonoma County, one of the images that comes to mind for a lot of people is, oh my goodness, what's happening to all the wineries? What's happening to all the vineyards? <laughs> Are we uh, are we going to see the price of wine go up? What what have you been hearing from the neighbors in terms of uh, you know obviously there's a lot of acreage that's been lost. Some of that for sure is agricultural acreage. Uh, what's been the impact? Yes. Um, so the number the data is still coming in, um, and and for certain there are wineries that have been lost. Several of which uh, we know the uh, property owners uh, personally. So it is very sad. My understanding at this point in time is that a greater percentage of the acreage in this most recent fire, the Kincaid fire, really was more open space, grassland, um, and uh, we have not lost as many vineyards as we lost two years ago. So I wouldn't be predicting a tremendous uh, price spike, tremendously notable price spike in Northern California wines at this time. So I'm happy to say that. If I could, though, Victor, I'd like to just uh, make a quick note, though. I've, I've written a bit of uh, my observations of these experiences at our website, peakprosperity.com, and anybody who's interested can go um, read my most recent two articles there, which are really sort of sharing some of the lessons learned, um, a bit of which I shared earlier. But I also get pretty specific into the resources that proved most valuable to the you know, nearly 200,000 folks that were forced to evacuate during this time period. And those resources are, I think, pretty universal in terms of their application to any sort of natural disaster. So I, I just want to put that uh, seed in people's ears that if you're listening to this conversation, take a moment to just ask yourself, all right, given where I live, what's the most likely type of disaster that's going to happen? Is it fire? Is it flood? Is it hurricane? Is it tornado? Is it blizzard? Uh, is it prolonged power outage? Whatever it might be. And, uh, you know, ask yourself if that were to happen today. Uh, with little advance notice, how prepared am I to deal with being mandatorily evacuated for an undisclosed period of time? And um, I would venture to say probably most people are going to, you know, if they're honest with themselves, they're going to answer that question, you know, probably not as prepared as I'd like to be. And uh, I don't necessarily want to go down uh, that list on this uh, 
on this podcast that might take a little bit too long, but I did just want to put it out there that if folks are interested in learning what was most valuable for us, we've got a pretty well distilled list there. I, I do want to give a shout out too to the uh, the local authorities here in Northern California, particularly Cal Fire and uh, the sheriff system. I think one of the reasons why this fire was so less destructive and certainly had had less loss of life was the the benefit we had this time was time. A big part of that was the increased conservatism with the local authorities in at the first sign of danger, um, alerting the community, keeping the community informed, and probably you know erring on the side of caution uh, more than not, telling folks to get out just in case you know the worst were to happen. And yes, it's inconvenient to to make almost a quarter of a million people leave their homes for a. A couple of days, but the alternative, uh, which is um, keeping people in their homes too long, um, I'll certainly take the former over the latter. Absolutely. I love that. I mean, just think about the logistics. You know, we're talking about three major NFL stadiums worth of people being moved out all at the same time. That's a huge logistic problem. You know, you're talking about roadways that are typically designed to handle 40, 50,000 cars in a day. And now you're going to try and jam that volume in a couple of hours. The roads simply can't do that. Queuing theory says that the delays, uh, once, once the traffic stops, the delays become exponential. And so it's really a logistics nightmare at that point to move that number of people out in a very short period of time. Very true. And I think what worked well this time is I think we had something like 36 hours of uh, evacuation warning in in different parts of the county. People were encouraged to leave then. Um, And so the nice part was that it wasn't a single moment in time where they told all 200,000 people to leave. Um, They were really encouraging, you know, leading up until the the mandatory notice. And, And by that time, the notice became mandatory. You know, people were expecting it at that point in time. So, uh, again, kudos to them. Um, one other thing I want to I want to underscore is there's the unexpected out there, and obviously having a, a natural emergency happen in your area that's unexpected. But these fires were coincident with PG&E, that's our uh, electrical and gas utility out here, uh, the surrounding country, the counties of where we live. Uh, that's because they knew that these dry conditions were coming, and they wanted to keep the power lines dark uh, just to minimize anything that could spark a fire. And of course, if anyone's been following the Kincaid fire, that was actually caused by a spark due to a, a malfunction during the shutdown that PG was uh, was implementing. So uh, even their plan to make things safer actually made things more dangerous. But their forced blackouts, uh, with that, the unintended consequence of that is once the fire got large enough where folks had to evacuate, we were all evacuating to places in the surrounding area that also had no power. So even if you've arranged, uh, prearranged a, you know, a safe place to, to evacuate to, um, a lot of people found themselves in places where uh, the ATMs weren't working, the traffic lights weren't working, uh, there was no running water or hot water. And it really did compound the, I'll say the inconvenience for people. I mean, again, spending a couple of days, uh, you know, by, uh, by lantern somewhere is a lot better than, uh, you know, staying in your house and having it burned down. But the point I want to underscore there is, is if there's something that you need to plan on in your emergency plans, is that they're not going to go according to uh, your exact plan. There's always going to be wrenches there in the mix. And in this one, those rolling blackouts were, were a big wrench. That's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. I'm, you know, here in Ottawa last year, we had four tornadoes that came through the core of the city. And I got stranded in New York City 
at that time, the flights were canceled. And when I came back the following day, because of the power outages, what would have been a 30-minute drive from the airport to my house took an hour and a half because of the blackouts. The fact that there were simply uh, the traffic lights were not working extended the travel time for, I'll say, really no good reason. And in in an emergency situation, that's something that's often present. You cannot count on the travel times that you're used to because of those power outages. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's it's one of those things that's real. Very true. Very true. So, um, you know, I think just to make things actionable for your uh, your audience here, if you've got the time and the interest, you can, you can read those two recent articles uh, on the front page of peakprosperity.com. I go into a little bit more detail about what we're talking about. We also have a guide on our website. If you go to peakprosperity.com slash WSID, uh, those initials uh, are an acronym for what should I do? That is our larger online resilience guide, uh, which is broken up into a number of steps. But step zero in that guide is a pretty exhaustive list of all the things that you would want to have in place in your house uh, to make yourself fully prepared for the types of conditions that we're talking about that come up during uh, an unexpected emergency from a natural disaster. So anybody looking for, you know, a real take me by the hand and just tell me what types of product solutions, uh, preparation steps I should be taking, that's a pretty good free resource. Well, thank you, Adam. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, the folks at Peak Prosperity, Chris Martinson, Adam Taggart, are kindred spirits. You know, we get together several times a year and always enjoy the time that we spend together. And, They're real thought leaders in this entire arena of what to do to set up your life to have a great life doesn't matter what's happening in your environment around you. And so definitely go check things out at peakprosperity.com and peakprosperity.com slash WSID. What should I do? Thank you for joining us, Adam. Thank you for sharing your firsthand account of what happened. And for the listeners at home, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen, and we'll talk to you again tomorrow.